0: Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 13. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, uh, you should feel free to grab one from the back. There are some on the tables just outside the door. And if you don't own a Bible, you should feel free to not only take that for the service, but write your name in the front, take it home, and then bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Before we read Psalm 13, let's pray together. Father, we come because, like the psalmist, we feel deeply the pains of this world. Uh, we experience suffering and trouble and trial, and we turn to you because we know that uh, you alone can make something good out of our struggles. And we come to you because we know that you alone can put an end To our struggles. Uh, We come to you because we know uh, that uh, you love us in your son Jesus and you are at work. And we pray, Father, that you would teach us about these things as we read Psalm 13, as we think about it together this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm. Psalm 13. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. <clears throat> I, don't, uh, I don't go on Facebook much. I don't use Snapchat or Instagram, and it's fine if you do. This is not an anti-social media sermon. Uh, <laughs> But whether you use social media or or not, you probably are familiar with the practice today of, of curating our very lives. We want every hair to be in place, every picture taken just right, the camera angle, the lighting, the setting to be flawless, and then we want it to look effortless. We want to give people the impression that this is the way our lives always are. And any pictures we don't like, we just delete and nobody ever sees them. We do this on a smaller scale, you know, when we clean up our house before guests come, like they didn't know that we just spent the last 20 minutes stuffing things into the closet and dumping the contents of the dining room table into a cardboard box, which we then threw into the garage. Not that that ever happened to me. (laughs) The church has a version of this. Maybe you can call it the Sunday morning smile. Right? It doesn't matter how you were how much you were fighting and arguing and yelling and screaming on the way to church, but once you get there, everybody smiles and everybody's happy. This happens on a, on a larger scale, even in the church. when we tell people that Christianity will solve all of your problems, it will answer all of your questions, it will take away all of your tears, and be the happy pill that you always wanted. And again, we sweep all of our questions under the rug. We cover over all our disappointments. We hide all our failures and sins and pretend that everything is just fine. Thank you very much. We don't want people to know that actually we struggle quite a bit. And then we get to Psalm 13. And we're strongly tempted to believe that David was sinning, that he was living in unbelief, that he was doubting God's care, And that a good Christian wouldn't say these kinds of things. Well, I want to invite you to say these kinds of things this morning. I want to invite you to cry out with David. And I want to begin by asking you a question, which is, what what troubles you? What isn't the way it was meant to be in your life? Where do you feel the sting of death? Where do you feel alone or angry or overwhelmed? Where do things seem to be getting worse and worse, not better and better? Where is the pain so great that you're on the edge of tears? Where is the pain so great that you've chosen to live in denial rather than despair because those are the only two options you could see? Where is the pain so great that you're not sure if you can go on for one more minute, much less hour or day, week or year. Have you ever cried out to God in your anguish? Have you ever let loose like the psalmist? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long do I have to put up with this? How long do I have to suffer? How long is it going to last? How long, O Lord? Have you ever wanted to cry out but been too afraid to say the words out loud? Or maybe you wanted to cry out but you, you felt ashamed. Ashamed of your hurt or ashamed of your pain or ashamed to cry out to God to make things better. In some ways, Psalm 13 is about permission, but it's also about hope. Our outline this morning, uh, we're going to work through four steps, as it were. They're not, it's not step one, and then finish that and move on to step two, But because you really never leave step one. You just build on it and add to it. But four aspects, maybe, of a faith-filled response to trouble. What does it look like to respond to trouble as a person of faith, as one who believes in the God of the Bible? We're going to say four things from Psalm 13. Longing, honesty, appeal, and confidence. First, longing. What was David's trouble? We don't know the specifics, actually, but we see here that he at least had a threefold problem. God was absent, his heart was in turmoil, and his enemies had the upper hand. As uh, some have put it, he has a theological, a psychological, and a social problem. First, uh, first problem was that he, he was neglected or abandoned. David feels as if God has forgotten him. He feels that way because God has not acted to rescue him from his troubles, Uh, One Old Testament scholar said, divine forgetting and uh, hiding the face mean the withholding of practical help. Since in the Old Testament, God's remembering and seeing are not states of consciousness, but preludes to action. So when David says, why have you forgotten me? He means, why aren't you doing something? Have you ever wondered with David, God, where are you? God, why haven't you done something? God, how long will you let me endure? Notice David doesn't try to get God off the hook. He doesn't make excuses for God. He knows if he is experiencing trouble that God is allowing it to happen. His only question is, how long? Second, David is full of worry and fear. Verse two, David takes counsel in his soul. He has sorrow in his heart. And the idea is this, David is experiencing some kind of trouble. Well, what specifically is it? Again, we don't know, but what do you do when you're in the heat of trouble? You think about it all the time. You keep wondering, what went wrong? Was it my fault? Could I have done something different? What should I do now? How can I fix this? Is there any hope? Will it ever end? And the questions never stop. And you try to plan, well, what, what if I do this? Or, or what if I do that? Or, or maybe I can do this other thing. Maybe I can fix this. Maybe I can mend what is broken. Maybe I can make things right. So David feels as if God is absent and he is experiencing turmoil in his soul. And then notice only, only third does David get to the, the human element, the human cause perhaps. His enemies seem to be winning they boast, they exalt over him. It might not even be that they are the cause of his problems, only that in light of his troubles, his enemies are boasting. It's as if, uh, you know, your, your, your high school basketball team had to forfeit a game because their van broke down, and the other team still gets the win. And you get the loss, whatever the case, right? The, the enemies are boasting, whether they caused it or not. God seems absent, His soul is in anguish. His enemies seem to have the upper hand. And so David cries out, how long? Is David's longing wrong? Should David just be content? You can imagine a well-meaning Christian saying just this, well, David, I know things seem bad, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Just be patient, David. Stop getting so upset. Paul was content in any circumstances and you can be too David. It would be well-meaning but mistaken counsel. To understand this we need to have the big picture in view. And the first thing we need to realize is that there is something wrong with the world. Human beings were not built to suffer, to know oppression, We were not made for sorrow. We were made for joy in our Father's house. Sin brings suffering. Sin brings death. And suffering and death are are therefore really the epitome of unnatural. Death was not meant to be the end. And second, we will see as we go on that death will not be the end for God's people. God himself has something more in store for us. Knowing that death was not the intention and knowing that death will not be the end, the the temporal element of David's question is brought out. How long, O Lord? This isn't the way it was. This isn't the way it will be. So how long? And of course, for David, the question is personal, right? He's not simply asking how long until you come back and make everything right, right? But David's question is, is that question in miniature? How long must I endure? I wasn't made for this. We all know that you know, trouble is one thing, but extended trouble is another. It runs us down and wears us out. And we grow weary and tired and out of breath. We can't keep going forever. At some point we know we will break. We long for the good old days the days of Eden. We long for better things to come, the day of the resurrection. Either way, we long for something else. And that longing is not wrong. In fact, to not long is to settle for brokenness when God wants to make us and the entire world whole again. Death is not meant to be the end, and therefore it's okay. Rather, we ought to want something more. We ought to long. Second, honesty. Honesty goes along with longing, doesn't it? But it needs to be said that if it's okay to long, surely we can be honest about it. We're not called to lie about it, to hide it, to pretend that everything is okay, David not only longs, but he expresses that in a vivid cry, the cry, how long? And the cry, how long, is is not a request for information. David is not hoping that God will give him a time frame. He wants his trouble to go away. He doesn't want a timeline for his trials. He wants them to end. Now, David's honesty is not a pity party. The Bible commends Honest longing. The world has its counterfeit, to be sure, but the counterfeit of honest longing is something like entitled indignation. right? And this may range from the sulks to an outright rage, but underneath it is always the same thing, the lie that I deserve better. And then if God doesn't make things right the way I want them to be, when I want them to be, then God isn't a good God. Entitled indignation, whether pity parties or angry rants, does not come from faith but from unbelief. It's not God-centered but me-centered. We're not entitled really to anything, certainly not on a spiritual level. In fact, we have forfeited any possibility of entitlement by our sin. But we can long. We can long only because God is gracious, because this is not what God intended. And because God himself, out of his undeserved kindness, has something more in store. And so we long for what God, in his grace, has promised. It's important to say, of course, about honesty, that if we won't be honest with God, we're really in it alone. If we don't take our troubles and trials to him, well, we just have to deal with them ourselves. Which is to say, if we refuse to be honest We alone feel the full weight of our suffering. But if we take it to God, we begin to unburden ourselves on Him. We cast our cares on Him because He cares for us, as Peter says. And what does that do? Well, there's nothing magical about it. And yet just the act of honesty, crying out to God, tells us we are not alone. There's a certain irony in the psalm in, in talking to a God who has turned away His face. The cry is, God, I feel like you've forgotten me. I feel like you're far off. But by the very act of the cry, David is saying, you're not so far off that you cannot hear. By crying out to God, we remind ourselves that we are not alone in a way that simply telling ourselves God is with you would not do. Why? Because we're acting on that truth by crying out. Are you honest? Are you honest? Are you honest with yourself about your pain and your trouble? Are you honest with God? Do you express your longing to Him? Do you, or do you feel it's not polite? Or that it's too selfish? Or that it's somehow unchristian to be that raw and that honest? Death is not meant to be the end. Therefore, it's okay to be honest with God about your circumstances. Remember, our honesty is based on the promises of God. Understand those promises and be honest and hope in him. And yet honesty about present circumstances is not the end. Which brings us to third, appeal. David not only honestly expresses his longing in verses 1 and 2, but he appeals to God for help in verses 3 and 4. And again, we we need to remember that this psalm is an expression not of unbelief, but an expression of David's faith. It's because David knows God, knows God's promises, knows God's power, knows God's goodness that he asks how long and then asks God to act. Now, I've already said, right, we we run into a kind of churchly character when we read these verses. Really, it's it's a misconception and the misconception is that it's wrong to question God in this way. But there are different kinds of questions in life. Some kinds, of que- some kinds of questions question God's character. As when people are angry and bitter and they say things like, if God were really good, he wouldn't let this happen. But David, his questions don't question God's character. So much as they seem to question God's actions based on his character. It's a, a kind of question that actually comes out of faith in the character of God. Again, we feel it's impolite to ask those kinds of questions of God, but David is, is living in this gap between promise and reality. And he's not wondering if God will act, he's just wondering when. Of course, there's this theological question as well that that we might ask. Well, has God forgotten David? I mean, maybe he has. Of course, the answer to that question is no. God has not forgotten. Technically, he can't forget. But then what does the psalmist mean? What What does David mean? Does he mean that God is ignoring him? Or just that it feels as if God is ignoring him? And is there a difference If God is not forgotten but is allowing it to feel as if he has, well, then what do we do with that? Suddenly we have the the, the philosophical problem. Well, if God is so good, how can he allow so much evil in my life? I think God's answer to the problem of evil is, is never a logical argument. It's almost always action. God doesn't explain abstractly how things are actually right despite, despite present appearances, though there is some truth to that. No, typically God simply acts to put things right. This is why David doesn't say, God, explain yourself. How can you allow such terrible things to happen to me? At least not here. No, he says, Psalm 13:3, "...consider and answer me, O Lord my God, light up my eyes." lest I sleep the sleep of death. He says, God, do something here. Make things right. Don't let this end in my death and the enemy's victory. Which really brings up another kind of Christian misconception that things must be right already because God is in control. Now, God is in control. And he will put all things right in the end. And what is present is planned. Yet... We should not draw from that, that everything is right. Some things in life are terribly wrong. God has allowed them to be wrong for a time, and he has acted and is acting and will act to put them right. And so we appeal to God out of that sense of wrongness, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Consider, right? Think on me, see my situation, contemplate my condition, understand my pain know what i'm going through and act this is the right prayer we know this to be so because this is the way god has acted in the past in exodus chapter 2 verses 23 to 25 israel is in slavery in egypt and we read that the people of israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God heard, God remembered, God knew, and what happened next in the story? The Exodus, The, the, the paradigmatic salvation event happened because God heard, and God knew. And so David cries, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. And this brings us to the final point, confidence. Verse five begins with a word that is very often very important in scripture, the word but. David experiences trouble. David longs for things to be different. David is honest about his struggles. David appeals to God for help, but David also trusts in God's steadfast love. Steadfast love is is devoted, committed love. And David knows that God is committed to him. This is not to say that David has everything figured out It's not to say that he understands why God is allowing trouble or what good it will accomplish or when it will end. We walk by faith and not by sight. Not because we have it all figured out, but because we know the one who does and we trust in his steadfast love. This uh, story doesn't quite seem to fit, but when... (laughs) Maybe I should say it doesn't seem to fit at all. But when Deborah and I got married, <laughs> I planned the honeymoon, and Deborah had no idea where we were going. Even when we got in the car and started driving, she still had no idea. Uh, now, this was back in the days of MapQuest, right, before smartphones. Uh, so uh, I had to print out the directions on real live paper. And uh, if I I, I remember, I gave her one page of the directions at a time. So she still didn't know where we were going until we got there. But it didn't matter because she trusted me. She was happy to go wherever I was going to take her. That's strange, maybe, to me, but (laughs) it was strange then and it's still strange now. Now, going through suffering and trials is no honeymoon, which is where the disconnect in the illustration comes. I know, I get it. (laughs) But the question becomes for us, do we trust in God's steadfast love? Do we trust him? Even when it hurts, even when it doesn't make sense, even when we have no idea where we're going, and how are we going to get there? David trusts, and so he says, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Why? Not because God has acted yet. As far as we can tell, David's problems have not been solved. There is nothing between verses four and five to indicate that his troubles have gone away. David trusts, and David will rejoice, and David will sing because God has acted in the past. And so David knows God will act again in the future. The psalmist lives in this tension between reality and promise. His very cry and appeal are really acts of faith. It's quite quite possible that the very act of crying out to God strengthened his faith, faith and reminded him of who his God was. And so it gave him the confidence to say, God has heard me, and God will act and so I will rejoice and sing. The psalm does turn a corner, right, in verse 5, but not because things get right. Rather, David remembers God has made things right in the past, and so will make them right again in his timing. God is for me, his steadfast love, so I will trust him. We talked about honesty uh, just a minute ago. Sometimes we are not honest with ourselves because we're too afraid of the truth. We think it will overwhelm us. We don't trust that God will take care of us. So we can be honest about our trials, even with ourselves. They're not gonna overtake us. Our God is with us. Our God will care for us. In God's plan, death is not meant to be the end. And so we can rest in the assurance that God will act. In fact, we can rest in the fact that he has acted in Christ. David has the past action of God and his present promises, but we have something even more sure. Our confidence comes from the resurrection. We see Jesus who who suffered on the cross for a time. You know, the Psalms repeatedly point to the cross again and again, but even here in Psalm 13, Jesus' enemies, They exalted over him. They said, he saves others, he cannot save himself. Jesus' enemies prevailed, right? Falsely arrested, falsely accused, falsely convicted, and then put to death. Jesus slept the sleep of death. If anyone could say how long, it was Jesus. The sinless one suffered. The God-man takes on God's wrath for sin at the cross, But of course, when Jesus asks how long, the answer is clear, until the resurrection. God the Father, because of his steadfast love for his Son, raised him from the dead, never to taste death again. In Jesus, and rising from the dead, the new creation has begun. Death has been overturned. God's promises have begun to be fulfilled. Even to the point where Jesus, Hebrews tells us, Jesus now sings in the midst of the congregation. It's one of those odd little verses that you get to and you're like, what? Jesus singing. Hebrews 2, 11 to 12, quoting Psalm 22, by the way, says, He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Jesus is the one who leads us in singing in the midst of the congregation, why? Because the Father has dealt bountifully with him in not abandoning his soul to the grave. So what then is our hope? Well, our hope is that I belong to Jesus, that I am in him as the scriptures say, that by faith Jesus is my God and my King and my Lord, and therefore as the Father has blessed Jesus in the resurrection, so he will bless me in him. We know that God will take care of us because he took care of our Lord and we belong to him. And yet our resurrection is not yet. We live in the middle of of what theologians call the already and the not yet. Jesus has already been raised. God has begun to fulfill his promises to his people, but we have not yet been raised. But we wait the fullness of the promises on the last day. Or as someone else put it, we live in the gap between promise and reality. And so we cry out over the realities that we face day by day, even as we trust in the promises of God. And sometimes trust is quiet. Isaiah 30 verse 15 says, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But sometimes trust is loud, wailing, weeping, crying out, I trust in your steadfast love, and so how long? I want to ask one more question before we end, which is, uh, what does it look like to walk alongside someone else suffering in this way? we've already said, or implied at least, don't say, well, stop your complaining and just be content. Okay, so then what? The short answer is, uh, Paul tells us to mourn with those who mourn. We take a little of their sadness onto ourselves. First, we, we, call, we call their trouble what it is. We, we, it's evil, it's suffering, it's violation, it's brokenness, it's sad, it's sorrowful. We don't try to, to pretty it over. We don't sweep it under the rug. We name it, sometimes for them, to give them permission to mourn, to give them permission to cry out. And second, we just spend time with the person, just be present. Right? Often the best thing is simply not to let someone be alone. You want to show them, I'm with you, I'm in, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. You don't have to go through this alone. And that very act is pointing them to the God who is with them and who is working to make all things new. And so you embody his his presence, his love, his grace, uh, literally by the indwelling of his spirit in you until you can speak of his presence and love and grace. And they hear it and are encouraged. Uh, One pastor of mine once said, uh, when especially fellow Christians are struggling, you, you get close to the brother and the si- or the sister and you say, I believe that God is in this and loving you in the midst of your struggles. And I'm going to stick by your side until you can say that too. Long, honestly, for God to act, knowing that he has acted to demonstrate his steadfast love in the cross and the resurrection. And that he will act decisively in our resurrection to come on the last day. That is our hope. That God will make all things new. And in the meantime, we know that he cares for us who are in Jesus. And so will care for us. As he works out his plan to make all things new on the last day. Let's pray. Our Father, we... We trust you. We we trust you. We trust your steadfast love. You have demonstrated your love in the cross of Jesus that you gave your son for us. We know you're not going to stop loving us now. Help us to trust you, Father. Help us to trust your unfailing love. Help us to confess it day by day. Help us to, to mourn and cry out and weep and wail and wonder how long and then sing of your steadfast love. Know that you, our good God, will care for us, however long it might be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.